Thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Looking Class Darkly with your host, Dave Oscuro. You may be asking yourself where I've been for the last few weeks. And I wanted to take a little bit of time at the top of this episode to sort of explain that um, the number one thing that occurred a few weeks back, uh, a couple months back, I guess now, was a frequent guest of the show and one of my closest and dearest friends, uh, Jason from the Regrettable Century podcast, was in a very terrible car accident. And um, if you've followed my social media, which you can at Dave Oscuro on Twitter, you know that there was a fundraiser put in place for him. Um, we were we were really scared, to be very frank. He was hit in a very terrible fashion that left him in a coma for two weeks. And, you know, as you can imagine, being a friend and certainly his family being so uncertain as to whether or not he would wake up, certainly whether or not he would have been alive. Um, and if he was alive and if he did wake up, in what condition would the rest of his life be? And uh, it was very traumatic and draining, and um, we were all worried sick. Uh, I can very gratefully and and um, exuberantly report that Jason is doing so much better. He he has um, progressed. Obviously, he woke up from his coma. He is speaking normally. He is um, exercising. He hasn't started walking yet, but that's coming very soon. And so the progression that he's made has been astounding. And personally, I credit so much of his recovery to not only uh, magic, prayers, thoughts, but the love and the respect that so many people beyond just his family and immediate friends, so many people in the broader community who have come across Jason, the love that they have for him, I 100% believe was part of what allowed his recovery to be not only successful, but as aggressive and rapid as it is. Many, many of the doctors early on thought that he'd be bedridden for much, much longer. And so, um, Jason's doing great. He's, he's doing better. There is a, a GoFundMe. If you have the means, please donate. Um, the, the, the toll that this has taken on his family financially beyond just emotionally has been pretty great. And we want to, as a larger community, try to give back and help them out. I'm an old punk rocker. So the rule in the pit is if someone falls, you, you pick them up before everything else. And I'm asking uh, for a little bit of grace from you wonderful listeners. If you have the means, please contribute. If you don't have the means, I understand times are hard. Share it. Share the GoFundMe. Spread the word. He's a good dude, and he's the kind of guy that this world needs. Super smart, very creative. Next to my my wife, he's probably been my my number one creative partner, and, and frankly speaking, he's certainly been the longest. I mean, we've known each other since we were kids. So um, if you have an opportunity, go go to my Twitter, Davis Giro, uh at Twitter. There's a on the pin tweet is the GoFundMe. Please donate, share, like, spread the word. Let's get Jason up and going and and literally and figuratively on his feet. The other thing that occurred sort of right before Jason's accident was a, a sort of a pilgrimage that me and some of my mates undertook to sort of discover the the roots and origin of a, an American-based faith and. The experience was very surreal for me because the beginning part of the trip was 
no pun intended, magical. Walking through certain groves, seeing wells, mountaintops, these these landmarks that really are the hallmark for this faith and walking through them and and feeling the energy that resides that reverberates from from within uh, was was amazing. Frankly, it was just so cool to, to be and stand in a place that so many people hold holy. And we don't think about holy places in America, but but this is one of them. And one of the purposes was to sort of highlight how so many holy, spiritual, magical places do exist in this world that we live in, in America that we live in, if you're here in America, and we just sort of pass by without giving it a second thought. The weirdness of that trip, though, was the second half of the trip when we kind of got away from its origins and kind of got more into contemporary, its contemporary modern form and, and the the feeling really shifted from something that felt super spiritual, super connected, um, divinely orchestrated into something that felt just like an accumulation of wealth and conservatism. And one of my mates on the trip described uh, one of the locations as like a funeral home. And certainly I don't think that anyone would want that to be connected with their faith. The idea that it, that, that their holy areas, that their spiritual centers are sort of been reduced to a commodity, commodity to have been reduced to something that is as, as sterile and, and uninspiring as a funeral home. Yet that was the experience. And it was really a tale of two cities. And it made me really realize that that trip and everything I experienced on that and then leading up to Jason's accident really put into perspective for me that as a society, we have, we've gone down the wrong path. I think that the further along we go with this sort of technomancy, this, this church of mammon, this, this obsession with consumerism and selfishness and me and ego. And, and those terms get used maybe too much, but they are relevant. And I came away from all these experiences, firstly, needing a break. As you can tell, the heaviness, the emotional toll, the stress, it just didn't really lend itself for me to feel creative or inspired. But it also kind of at the, coming at the end of this, this sort of long lost weekend that I've been embarking on, it has really confirmed to me that the, the way you combat so much of what's going on that, that leaves us feeling unsettled, unsatisfied, inhuman perhaps is can be com- combated by connection it can be combated by not feeling like it's impossible to form a community of like-minded folks who hold you accountable support you love you challenge you inspire you my hope for this podcast has always been to do that with those folks who are listening in the ether Maybe you hear my voice. Certainly, uh, I put all give all flowers to my guests. You hear their voices. You hear their stories. You hear my stories, and maybe in some way it relates to your story. Maybe in some way it inspires you. Whether it's to start your own podcast or to tell your story or to perhaps live your life more in accordance with what your will is, what your core is, what's in your guts, instead of what the man tells you to do, what, what your job tells you to do, the, the corporate influence, the, the living in your, your aluminum steel death traps on wheels as you sit in traffic and you, you're separated from one another and you live in concrete cities where there's no grass, there's no trees, there's no hope 
for growing and owning and having your own space to create those things can weigh us down those things can be heavy in our brains and our emotions but you can fight against that and and that's really what this has led me to and this is why this podcast is coming back because i'll be very honest there are moments when i thought it was probably done and maybe i was just done podcasting but today more than any other day i really realize that sharing stories is the number one way by which we bond and create culture and while i might look into this looking glass darkly look into this world that is broken strange twisted upside down in my view i can still help perhaps in some small way contribute to a better culture a culture that might lead us out of this weird world that we're in into a world that that emphasizes love compassion empathy understanding intelligence creation manifestation magic love those things, those things that, that satiate us in our soul, not just fill our bank account or clutter that we fill our houses with that leaves us more empty than when we had nothing in it at all. So Into the Looking Glass Darkly is back. I'm going to do my very best to keep it consistent. I do have some free time coming up. Um, the job that I've been on has been extraordinarily stressful. That certainly didn't help my my sort of sabbatical away from it. But coming out the other end, I'm really excited to reconnect with each of you. I'm really excited to share my guest stories, to share new stories on my end, to to share with you perhaps something that is a little bit of a break from the, the, the mundaneness of this weird society that we've built. So I hope you enjoy what you hear and I hope that you enjoy this podcast. And thank you so much for those who have stuck around. I just checked my, I, I host everything on SoundCloud and seeing how many people have been listening while we I've been gone. It's, it's humbling. So thank you all so very much. Before we get into the episode, I want to do two things. Number one, my great friend, Christina Peichels, you can find her on Twitter and on YouTube invited me with her friends to be part of sort of a Johnny Depp film appreciation night. I wasn't really sure what I was walking into, but you know, four hours later we were just riffing, just, just having jazz, you know, about like all the cool stuff that is film and specifically Johnny Depp's films and, and his performances and his, uh, his method and choices that he's made. And it was a great time again, forming community you know, four people, three people coming together and having a chin wag over something that we love and art that we love. What's cooler than that? Super fun time, different dynamic for me because I wasn't the host. I just got to be the guest, which is always super fun to me. And I definitely will do it again. Um, so check that out. If you check my Twitter, you can see that I tagged the folks that were involved in it. Follow them as well. It was a good time. Christina Peichel's joined up from appreciation night. I'm a guest. Go listen. Give Christina a follow as well. She's a great person and, and definitely someone who um, who inspires me and inspires me and and is doing is creating. You know, not letting a no be the final word. She's creating. She's doing, and it's awesome. And I was really um, I was very humbled and I was very appreciative and I was very flattered to be a part of it. So. Please give it a listen if you've got some time to kill. Put it on the background. Follow her on YouTube. She creates a lot of great content. The last thing that I'm going to mention um, is I, this is a shameless plug, and these guys don't sponsor me, but 
dad grass. I've talked on the podcast openly about my use of marijuana. It has really transformed my life in, in, in a lot of ways. And certainly when I was going through this very dark period, I found that it helped uh, manage my anxieties and stress levels. Not to mention I've had a, a neck injury that I'm rehabbing now, but for longest time, weed was really my number one source of pain relief. So it's excellent. But you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a functional stoner. I, I, I do it at night at the end of the day, but what I do use more often than not during the daytime is something that I came across called dad grass and dad grass is essentially a CBD CBG hybrid uh, pre-roll and um, it's got just the slightest bit of THC in it so if you're like me and you can't quite function on THC this is great it gives you a nice body relaxation gives you a nice sort of easy feeling lowers anxiety again these guys aren't supporting me but I just like this product a lot and I want to give it its flowers no pun intended so uh, if you're looking for if you if you partake in um, plant medicine and this is actually federally legal because it, it has such a, a 0.3% THC content that it's actually I think you can just order this from anywhere so just go to dadgrass.com and uh, give it a give it a chance if you if you're into that I think uh, I speak highly for it and I don't often endorse things but this thing has been super cool and they actually have a George Harrison special edition um if you if you're a fan of the george harrison classic all things must pass dad grass released all things must grass and you know me i love a good pun so check it out i like it um who knows maybe they'll give me free packs i don't know it doesn't matter it's good stuff and i think you guys will enjoy it as well so no more plugging no more explanation as to why i've been gone let's get down to business my guest today my favorite guest because she's also my beautiful wife and my creative partner in crime jess from the coffins and coffee twitch channel joined me as we uh talked about an experience that we recently had or at least recently had when we recorded the podcast which was that we went to monster palooza here in los angeles it's a horror convention there were members from scream there there was a makeup artist there tim curry was there signing autographs it was cool so if you like horror stuff um you know i'm i kind of chalk up the summer as a loss the summer sucked okay i don't know for everyone but for me this was a bad summer i am done with it i am ready for fall i'm ready for psls i'm ready for scarves i'm ready for dressing like a hobo wearing a beanie every day wearing a hoodie every day long walks so with a hot coffee i am ready for spooky season and i thought you know what we're kind of like in early august but who cares we just turn our let's let's turn our gaze away from the sunshine into those falling colored leaves so the, the crisp in the air let's put our eyes towards halloween let's have fun for once and i thought after such a heavy summer and such a long sabbatical my last weekend how about coming back with an episode that's just fun fun talks about horror stuff and film and whatever else we challenge it's been such a long time since i've listened to the since we recorded the podcast i don't even recall what's all in it so it'll be a surprise to me as well so i hope you all enjoy i'm glad that you all stuck around i i think that you're gonna have fun with this one so without further ado, my guest today, Jess from the Coffins and Coffee Twitch channel, talking about Monster Palooza. And I am joined by a very special guest, very beautiful guest as well, <laughs> the purveyor of horror screams and video games from the Coffins and Coffee Twitch channel. Jess has joined us after having experienced her first horror convention at Los Angeles Monster Palooza. Yes. So have you ever been to one before? No. What was it like for you? 
That was super fun. I think even if you're not like a huge, because there was a lot of stuff there that was sort of delved into like you know, special effects and makeup and all that sort of stuff. And I think even if you're not like in the industry or have a particular interest in that stuff, there was still a lot of stuff there for everybody. Right. Now, one of the things that, that definitely jumps out at me was the craftsmanship into it. And it really makes me, you know, as, as, as a person who is obviously a film buff, film professional, but also someone who has a real nostalgic uh, mind for the, the great special effect classics and masters of like the 70s and 80s to see that there's still so much craftsmanship around special effects and monster mask making and art and even just art and like drawings and like posters it's 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 an abundance and i think for most people who don't who aren't hardcore fans who maybe don't know that these things these kind of events exist and they're used to all the CGI and CGI right. being the the solution, whereas it used to be makeup effects and puppetry. It's pretty amazing to see that this is a craft that, even though it's not as in high demand as it was in a different time period, is still maintaining. Right. I love all that practical effects stuff because, like, that doesn't exist like as much as it did in, like, say, in the eighties or the seventies mm. and eighties, when a lot of like horror special effects were practical, like. That stuff's hella awesome. And I saw a lot of the stuff that these people were doing. I'm just like, why are we using CGI? Like, why? <laughs> well, I'll tell you part of the reason why is because it's faster on set. So people often think, oh, CGI, it's going to be it's going to be um, cheaper. And it's oftentimes it's really no. not that much more cheap. I mean, a, an easy shot of just adding fire to something 2D, right? Not even three dimensional. Mm-hmm. You're looking at 15 to 16 hundred dollars per shot and right. and a shot in the vfx world is like five seconds maybe 10 but usually it's like five to six seconds is considered a shot so if you're like um let's just think of a character who gets cgi let's say um the gentleman uh bill skarsgård in the new it mm-hmm. right probably a good percentage of his makeup was augmented by vfx so for every five seconds that he's on screen whatever the cost of those vfx shots are it happens every five seconds. So it can be incredibly expensive. However, it is still slower on set. I mean, uh, to shoot practically because you're physically bringing in a mechanical puppet or you're applying makeup, which can take, you know, several hours to apply before you even begin mm. shooting. And so I think that because for those of us in physical production, it's easy to sort of be like out of sight, out of mind and not think about the, the amount of hours that go into the VFX stuff. It's just easier. Right. I don't necessarily think it's better. And I do think one of the reasons why people like you and I, and I, I, most people I know actually who prefer practical effects to VFX is because VFX creates something of this like uncanny valley. Right. Well, it was like we were talking about the other day. We were watching, they had like a behind the scenes video uh, from the first Avatar. And uh, what's that actress's name? Zoe... Uh, I know who you're talking about. She was also in... Um, she played Gamora. Yes, she was right. in Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyway, that act- she's brilliant. She is such a fantastic actress. And you're watching the behind the scenes where they've got like a little skin tight suit on and all the dots on her to like for motion tracking and stuff. And then you watch the scene that they overlaid the CGI after and all of that acting is lost. It is gone. Yeah. Like you don't see that raw emotion in her face. Like if I, they should have, they could have CGI the whole world. I didn't give a shit. But if she was just in makeup, 
I think that performance would have been absolutely stellar, which is crazy because that movie won a stupid amount of awards anyway. But <laughs> but that's, but that, but that's sort of a common thing that when things run through a machine and and in particular like a virtual machine, right? A computer, social media, VFX uh, compositors. There is so much of that nuance that it that the technology for as as advanced as it's become over the last you know, 20, 30 years in particular, that it still loses a lot of nuance. It just isn't at that point yet. And there may come a time when it is, and it's close in many regards. But I feel like that also, again, I mentioned earlier, it sort of creates the uncanny valley. I think that is partially why it does, because it is it is close. It almost reminds me of like the first Terminator film, where you see uh, when they're having the conversation about the early T-100s and how mm. their their skin looked rubbery and they were easy to spot from far away. And in some regards, a lot of the CGI that's applied to monster effects now, it's it's like it's close, but there's a shininess to it. There's an unreal, right. uh, unrealness to it. There's a lack of texture to it often, even the most advanced CGI. And it just is easy to spot. Whereas in the 80s, the monster effects that were there, they... Um, they obviously don't look as real, but they look cool. They're like, they're an attraction right. in and of themselves. So even though it doesn't look quote unquote realistic, to me anyway, it feels far more enjoyable. Right. So like one that comes to mind is the other, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, we were watching Willow. Yeah. Now I remember when I first saw that movie, the trolls, they're mm. just dudes in a suit, man. They fucking scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Like, that's terrifying. Or even the demon dogs that chase yes. in the beginning. They're just literally dogs with, like, a mask on. Yeah, it's very right. evident. It's like in, uh, in I think it was in Alien 3 where they had the was that was it Alien Three where the guy's dog he has like a Rottweiler and it gets attacked yeah and it's just got like stuff hanging on this like Rottweiler. <laughs> what I what I find so interesting is that you may be the only person alive who prefers Alien Three to the other Alien movies, including David Fincher, who directed Alien Three. I love Alien Three, and let's not knock David Fincher. I love Fincher's stuff. No, Fincher's fantastic, even though he did give us the two most misunderstood movies of all time in Fight Club and Gone Girl. Oh, my, don't even start me. But, That's um, a whole other podcast for another day. But what I loved about this convention is that, you could, I mean, it was packed. I mean, it was, it was obviously there was tons of people there. It was across two convention halls. Plus, there was a separate, you know, screening room. Mm-hmm. And you could see just how filled it was with people who still appreciate this older art form and how they're they're willing to maintain it, you know, sort of carry this current of of a of a craft, of a skill, yeah. you know, that's ever probably being lost. Like like things happen and it, like artisanship occurs over time as technology provides a substitution for it. The time and skill that used to go into something sort of evaporates, which is not to say I want to take anything away from VFX compositors and the skill and technology and right. time that they put into their work and their craft. It's just it's it's difficult watching and to be born into a time period when like the horse and buggy gets replaced by the the uh, Model T. Yeah, right. It was old old man yelling at clouds like. <laughs> yeah. All these gosh darn computers are ruining everything. <laughs> But one of the things that we watched, we watched, uh, and I forget the gentleman's name, Brett something, I forget off the top of my head now, but um, the gentleman who did the, the the makeup effects, he was a makeup head for the 90s It TV movie, you know, the one right. starring Tim Curry. And he brought up a really good point. He was very obviously complimentary towards the new It and the, the 
artistry that was that went behind that. But one thing that he noted as a difference between his version of Pennywise and the Bill Skarsgård Pennywise, which was that the Tim Curry Scars or the Tim Curry Pennywise um, could look harmless yes. at moments based on the way that they did the makeup. That if that Tim was in control of whether or not the character looked disturbing, dangerous, frightening, yes, or bumbling, innocent, silly. Whereas in the new it, because of the way they did the VFX, and because again, it's it is a VFX shot for largely, um, you lose a lot of that. Yeah, he just kind of always looks disturbing. Yeah. And the scars guards in general, kind of at least the Bill, Bill and um, Stellan, maybe maybe less uh, the other gent, the Northman gent, but but Stellan and, and Bill have a, a tendency of always kind of coming off a little unnerving. It's just in their nature, yeah. So it's it's partially also their performance. But I do think that the VFX gave it a lot less range that the practical effects were able to provide the actor. Oh, for sure, for sure. And again, it's like another instance of like you said, like Bill Skarsgård can like have that menacing front but like so much of that just gets taken away like you know i i just it's like i just think that avatar as an example is like a very prime example of how you can actually take away from the acting when you think you're making something bigger and better you're actually taking away from your finished product well, I think that's when you look at the movie industry as a whole you start to sort of see that right we the, we just watched um hidden figures and sort of one of the themes within this movie, if you haven't seen it, it's, a bunch about, it's about a bunch of African-American mathematicians who were very integral in the early space uh, development program in America and with NASA. And one of the key themes is sort of the difference in sort of the struggle between the new IBM supercomputers that were would eventually take the place of physical mathematicians yeah. and the people who spent the time learning the math. And the, the inherent difference between having humanity versus machine. And on, although the climax of the movie comes with not so much showing that the computers are wrong because they had the right calculation, but more in that it's easier to believe and trust something that whom you could look in their eyes. Yeah. That is tangible, that is a person, that is flawed. In theory, humans should make more mistakes than computers. Right? Yeah, right. Or at least stand a better probability of doing so. And yet for us as humans, we because we relate to other humans it's better and easier to trust someone who does the calculations with their own brain than a computer that you're, you can't ask questions. You can't look into its eyes. You can't relate to it in any way. Right. And I think that this is sort of a common theme that we're as a society, we're sort of sitting in right now. We're in so much of our entertainment and our sense of community and our socializing and our uh, obtain up, uh, obtaining of news and information is sort of predicated on it running through a machine, right? The spectacle machine before it, it gets to us. And I think that what we can see if we look around is a general distrust. We were just reading an article the other day about how there is a growing distrust of what, you know, you could call mainstream media. It's a little bit of a dog whistle. Maybe a better term is legacy media. This old guard, right? These old funny duddy institutions that have long since given up on journalistic integrity more and more as a society we are coming to understand and to believe them less to trust them less and some would be moan this as a collapse in um 
uh, you know, tr- humanity's trust in the institutions that are looking out for them. I would argue, however, that it's more indicative of the fact that we've realized that those institutions threw us overboard years ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, do you remember when, like... <laughs> people had to post things in the like newspaper that were true and when newspapers did redactions it's like oh we right. received some false information we need to fix that now now they're just reporting whatever they like like the, the, you can literally write an article on anything for a newspaper be it true or false and it still gets published it's like yeah that's scintillating that's saucy let's run it on page true you well, know? And, and not to say that there wasn't always sensationalism in newspapers. That's that's not inherently new. But I do think that the move towards things living online has made it and, and, and the speed that that dictates. Mm. Because in the old ye olden days, when you had to print a paper, that thing would be printed and would be on the newsstands by like five, six in the morning. Right. Which meant that you spent the whole previous day fact checking and um, making sure everything was on the up and up and, you know, really, really, f- f- you know, finessing the, 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 the articles in such a way, laying them out, what have you, cho- choosing what goes on the front page, et cetera, choosing the headline, all those things. You had an entire day to do that before it hit the news, the publication. Right. And then you started again with the next day's news and so on and so forth. Because now there's an ease uh, that's being granted by the technology of the internet and Twitter and things of that nature. News news not only can but ha- is almost forced into being reported at a breakneck speed, where yeah. the opportunity to add that nuance is lost. Right, it, it's removed from it because how how much nuance, how much thought, how much um, even backstory and research can one do when one knows that the pace of Twitter is second by second. And yeah. if you tweet out an hour late, then you're old news already. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I, mean, I think a very primal, primal. Oh my goodness, a, pri- a very prime example of that. We were watching the um, the Johnny Depp trial recently, and TMZ received that video. It was already up in 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. How much fact checking can you do in 12 minutes? And then that video turned out to be edited. Right, and and again, because the thing about technology that is is both good and bad is that it moves so fast. It, it yeah. provides, I remember years ago, I was watching a sort of a behind the scenes making of DVD with Robert Rodriguez, and he was talking about using technology to move at the speed of thought. And in some regards, that can be very beneficial. Um, when you're an independent filmmaker and you know technology, you can do things that you wouldn't be able to do normally because it would require like 10 people. Yeah. And you can do that by yourself, right? You can edit by yourself. You can record music by yourself. You can um, even maybe film to some degree on your own. And so there's a lot of things that can be helped uh, with technology and moving at the speed of inspiration at the speed of thought isn't inherently bad in all instances. If you're in particular, if you're an artist, right? If you're an artist and you have the ability to just move and create at the speed of your own inspiration, right? As, as the muse touches upon your lips, then amazing. That's fantastic. It's the other stuff that's being run through this, this, um, this sort of matrix of machinery and technology that loses some of the, again, the detail, the nuance, the artisanship hmm. that would go into your makeup effects, your journalism, your what have you, your movie making in general. A lot of that stuff's getting lost because it's filtered through something that just moves far too quickly and puts a premium on moving quickly versus 
skillfully. Right. It's like one thing that comes to mind with that is I remember I watched, I don't know, you didn't watch it, did you? You didn't watch the Dark Crystal series, did you? I didn't get to finish all of it. I think maybe I watched the first two episodes. Right. So I finished that and then I moved on to the documentary because that's what we do in this house. We watch things and then we look up behind the scenes stuff for it because we're nerds. And like watching that movie took me way back to my childhood because all those sets are practical. Mm -hmm. None of it's CGI. Like they built those sets in two months. Like all hands on, like that was amazing to me. Cause like some of those sets are massive. They had to build all the puppets, like all of that stuff. And there wasn't, there was some CGI in it. I think they added like little bits like to, um, uh, like with tongue movement and things like that, because some of that stuff you just, just can't get through, through puppetry. But I thought that was fine. That was just enough. It didn't need all of that other shit. Like, and it was perfect. And, and it was funny because a lot of the complaints I saw were people like, oh, they used too much CGI. It's like, oh, they used just enough, I thought, in that. Some of it was a little bit over the top, but like, it just, that, that just proves like you don't need, you don't need all of that CGI stuff. Like, well, and oftentimes, you know, again, there is value in the use of it because it can augment things. And, you know, one of my favorite examples of VFX being used is the movie Parasite, which if you've seen the movie Parasite, it doesn't even feel like they're CGI. Right. But that house was almost entirely a CGI concoction. So there is value in it. But but VFX, in my opinion, at the stage that it's at right now, is better used when you never notice it. Right. The moment you start to notice VFX, you've probably used it incorrectly. Yeah. You know, you should aim. I mean, again, money's a concern. There's other things that are concerns. But you should really always aim to uh, do it as practically as possible. And again, I would say to any filmmakers who are listening or just people who are interested in it, it doesn't mean it's inherently cheaper. I have a good authority that if you want to build something like, let's say, a fire pit, right? Mm -hmm. It would... would almost certainly be cheaper to build a physical fire pit with a real flame including you know your permits for your fire safety person your special effects person the the effort and labor it takes to construct this fire pit all those things taken into account it is 100% much more likely to be cheaper than VFX by i would say almost 3 times the amount right cuz remember we watching um i remember the other week we were watching Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> Um, I could discuss that series for ages, but that's like, that's an, again, that's a whole other podcast, but, um, there was the creature that Obi-Wan was riding. Did, what did you calculate that would probably cost? Oh man, I don't even know. I mean, just one, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands. That's like a full, like 20 second scene of that creature and him riding on it. Yeah, and it, and it's 3D. It's got texture. I mean, mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. I, I would I would guess that just the creation of that animal just the creation of it was probably in the tens of thousands of dollars and then every time it's applied maybe hundreds of thousands and then every time it's applied every movement just is adds on top of that so um you know so again like what's the what's the price put on learning a craft that yes may quote unquote not look realistic although you know again i don't know that it looks less realistic than um than cgi stuff like does avatar look realistic to anyone no absolutely fucking nobody you know i mean uh, we have we put 
so this is sort of a, a horror themed episode we put uh, some some you know, classic horror trailers on the background while we're chatting and I'm just watching some of these things like Cujo and what have you even there was a moment just now where it looks like something burst through a wall and they played it in reverse to create the sensation of of you know this being mystical and the whole magically closing up and it's very evident to me that what they just did is they played it in reverse yeah but it still kind of works and it definitely works better than if it was a cgi kind of thing right could you like like i remember like when i was a kid my one of my favorite things to watch is my uncle bought me a copy on vhs for all you old fellow oldies out there um of the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. I've talked about it often. It's one of the big inspirations for me to become a filmmaker. Right, same, same. So, like, but watching that, like, I remember watching the film clip firstly as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, it didn't occur to me in my mind that that's makeup. That's, you know what I mean? Because, like, you don't get taken out of it when it's practical for me. But then watching like behind the scenes stuff, I was like, wow, this is like amazing. I put little puffers like under the cheeks for like when he turns into like the, the werewolf or whatever he's supposed to be, like all that sort of stuff. Like and physically hand pumping, like with hand pumps through hoses, like air, like into the cheeks to make them puff up and all that sort of stuff. Like. Well, it's impressive. It is impressive. And I just think I would love for all films to go back to that. I think it's fantastic. Now, what is it? Because usually, and I've seen this, I've seen this mentioned many times. There's sort of this archaic idea that women don't like things like blood, gore. These are more masculine-driven things. But the but the reality of it is, is that the the stats prove otherwise. Fifty percent of all horror fans are women. Yeah. And I think just as a again a sort of an anecdotal sort of observation, when we were at the Monstrapalooza in Pasadena. I would say at least half the people there were women. I was going to bring that Maybe up. Maybe more. I was going to say there's probably more. Probably more than that. But having said that, Skeet or Rick was there, so maybe. That's that also true. <laughs> Matt, you, you did you did fangirl over Matthew Lillard quite hard. I love Matthew Lillard. I think he's such an underrated actor. And he seems so nice. He was posing with this girl. He's like, wait, turn around. He's like, let's do an awkward prom photo. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. But do you remember back, you know, when I mean, maybe maybe it's maybe it is simply this VHS copy of Michael Jackson thriller. But do you remember back when you first realized that you were like a fan of horror? Yes, I do, and I can tell you the exact exact moment. Sorry, I was having a slumber party. I was twelve, and my mum said, "Here goes ten dollars. You can go up to the blockbuster." Again, for all of you oldies out there, you can go up to the Blockbuster and get some movies. Now, they knew us quite well up there because we would go rent movies all the time. And we went up with our little friends. And they didn't care what you rented out. Like, they just didn't give a shit. And here we are, 12 years old. And I got out a copy of Hellraiser. Nice. And I think it was Hellraiser and it might have been Halloween or Friday the 13th. It was one of those. But I specifically remember getting out Hellraiser and, like, it was so scary, like, as a 12-year-old child. It's scary now. <laughs> it's scary now. But, like, and again, that's all, like, for the most part, that's all practical effects. Like... And I just thought that was so cool. How did they get those pins in that guy's head, man? Like, what the hell? Like, 
I, I specifically remember like that night and getting out that movie and my sister remembers it well too because at the time she probably would have been six mm-hmm. and we made her watch it as well but she's a huge horror buff too if you name a horror movie she's seen it like <laughs> well what's so. interesting about Hellraiser is that it's not only just uh, it, you know it kind of bucks the, the trend of that era where there was like the slasher monster right mm. your Freddy Krueger's your Jason's your Michael Myers Hellraiser Pinhead, who's who's only known as the um, the priest, right? The hell priest yeah. in the in the credits. He wasn't even named Pinhead officially. He's not actually the monster of the film. No. Frank is the monster. Right. Frank Frank is called Frank the monster. Yeah. It does a really amazing job of introducing a sense of sort of religious um, commentary. Yeah. Along with sort of sexual commentary and also explores some very humanistic, basic, primal instincts like greed, lust, envy, wrath. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, it's a lot deeper than the average person thinks. And, and frankly speaking, I think a lot of the great horror films, the ones that people really remember, they were all great in some very specific way right. even though they're kind of looked at now and, and even at the time by the critics as this sort of lowbrow entertainment like in the way that we mostly look at like Michael Bay films like yeah. uh, Transformers but I, I've I've always felt that they that their legacy has held up so much stronger because there is a lot more subtext than you get in some of the more common tentpole Marvel and DC and Harry Potter type films do you remember ever thinking to yourself what is it about horror that's so attractive to me because you're also like a true crime person like you you've oftentimes you you have books on like dead people being posed like you have a uh, i would say that it would not be unfair to say that you have a bit of a flair for the macabre Mm. what is it for you that draws either yourself personally but also like generally society to these very um, morbid imagery entails. I think I think by nature, like human beings like being scared. The same reason you go on a roller coaster, right? It's not because the roller coaster is fun. It's because it's scary. Right. Right. But unfortunately, like now, if I watch new horror movies, it's not scary to me anymore. But I think, and I was discussing this with my sister only last week, I think it's because the horror movies from like the... 80s, even some of the ones into the early 90s, but that's sort of where it dropped off and then you started getting more of that slasher genre, um, which is a whole other conversation. I think it's because the ones that we were just describing, those sorts of movies, I think it's they were a lot more deep than just like a guy comes around and he's getting all stabby stabby and, you know, kills the whole school or the college campus or the you know the school camp or whatever (laughs) like i think it was because they were a lot more nuanced and there were more practical effects everything now is just special effects it doesn't look real it takes me out of it i think also one of the things that's occurred in filmmaking and i do and i will say that it i I don't want to say that it started here but it certainly became very popular in the 90s um once enjoyable now oversaturated was all the self-referential moments within films. Even uh, last night after, I forget what we were watching. We started watching Many many Saints of Newark, Mm. uh, which is a prequel to The Sopranos. Obviously not horror, but there, one of the things that just jumped out at me was like, 
it felt like it spent too much time trying to reference the Sopranos. Reference the Sopranos. It was like they they bargained on you being like, he did the thing. He did the thing. Yeah. He said the thing. It's that, like in Marvel when you're like, oh my god, he did the Hulk smash. Or, yeah. You know. Or Avengers <laughs> Assemble. Exactly. And you, you know, the the I I don't generally watch superhero movies much anymore, but I I have in real recent weeks watched both Doctor Strange. Um, whatever the, in the mouth of madness or multiverse, whatever it is, and um, and also the the three Spider Man movie, and um, in both instances, but specifically the Spider Man movie, it felt like eighty percent of the movie was just coming up on other references to either referencing yeah. memes or referencing like behind the scenes stuff. Like there's a moment where Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker slash Spider Man starts stretching his back out before they beat up the bad guys. Mm. And they have a brief little convo on how web slinging is bad for his back. And that's a reference to Tobey Maguire trying to get out of Spider-Man 2 by claiming he had a bad back. Yeah. And they almost replaced him with Jake Gyllenhaal. In fact, they pretty much did. And then they worked it out and he, he ended up coming back after the fact. But it's like it's moments like that, right? Or the three Spider-Man pointing at each other like the meme that yeah. you've seen. <laughs> So much of the movie making has gone away from the actual storytelling process and more into a, it's a spectacle. I mean, it's the best way I know how to describe it. It's it's almost, it's more in line with sort of a firework presentation than an actual storytelling. Like if you go to watch fireworks, there's not really much of a story there. You know, it will build to a conclusion, the grand finale, but beyond that, you're just looking at pretty lights versus if you went to a play or you even sat down with your nan and she's just telling you a story while she's sitting on a rocker on the front porch, there is a different level of captured attention right. that occurs that you just don't get from the fireworks. You get to watch fireworks from far away and enjoy them almost the same, yeah. right? Um, the only real value that you're getting from it is the presentation, is the is the explosion, is the spectacle of it. Right. But not much beyond that. And I do feel like movies have kind of moved in that direction. And I think the withering away of the craftsmanship of movie of magic has contributed to that. Has contributed to it being far more aesthetic and lacking a lot of the, the depth that older movies would have had to have had to find success. I think as well, like the, the problem, like a lot of horror films now particularly like in the slasher genre is you have these very predictable story arcs you know you have usually you know just and this is just my observation in my opinion but like usually you have a group of friends to go do a thing introduce the bad guy bad guy comes slaughters them off bar two then you usually think both of them are dead then you get the final girl she comes up witty retort kills bad guy bad guys and dead Q sequel like that's pretty much what I've noticed is like the the standard and predictable story arcs because I think when you look at horror movies from like the 80s and stuff there was no predictable story arc to be had like if you I mean again with the exception of the slasher genre if you were to watch something like Hellraiser or you know Hellraiser is a good example like could you have predicted that story arc Right, no. No, you couldn't have. But I think, you know, and that comes into, like, current horrors being very tropey. Well, it's not, I I think it's not, it's important to note that those 
tropey type movies existed then also. But they were they tropey then? Yes. I, I do think that I mean if you look at like the eighties, for example, if you look post Halloween or or um Black Christmas, there are a lot of derivative terrible horror films. Now that being said, the difference is is there was enough standout horror films mm. that as a whole the genre didn't feel reductive to tropey moments and right. self referential moments. Whereas now, I don't know that there's enough hits, there's enough standouts that it elevates the whole of the genre. Just like action films, right? There's always been bad action films. But there was, at one point, such amazing action films that it lifted everything up by it. That's right. When people think back, they don't think of... um, uh, man, I don't even know if I want to slander Action Jackson. Okay, Action Jackson is not the best horror movie of uh, action movie of all time. Okay, it's got Carl Weathers in it. He's I've got never a car. Even heard of it, so yeah, obviously. E- exactly. <laughs> His whole gimmick was he was fast, faster, fastest. It's not great. It's entertaining in its own right, but yeah. it's it's not great. But it lives in the same world as Predator and Commando and the Terminator and yeah. um, I could you know any Jean Claude movie. So it lives in a world where there was these great examples of the genre and so you just sort of fondly think back at all that and i think the same is true for horror right you have your if you're looking just like at the 80s you or in late 70s you've got your halloween you've got your black christmas you have nightmare on elm street you have friday the 13th one and two and maybe three even you have um you have enough strong entries that it elevates the entire right. genre versus now there are still great horror movies. I, I think Monkey Paw, um, Jordan Peele's company, does a fantastic job. Yes. I think A24 does a fantastic job, even though they don't do strictly horror. I think um, Blumhouse is a little more hit or miss, but they when they're on, they they hit, they do great stuff. So it's, I, it's not that these things are bad. It's not that there's not great horror movies out there now. It just feels like they're not so great that the entire genre is elevated. And the last time I remember it feeling that way... It was just a few years ago when we got what, what people started calling art house horror, which was right. really just good horror movies. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, like, I would struggle to think of a really good horror film that's come out in the last 10 years. Oh, Get Out is pretty good. Um, yeah, Get Out was great. I mean, there's those exceptions. The Witch. Like, I know you didn't so like it as much. I didn't like as, it. Well, I didn't like it. It's a different. It's in a different type of film, right? Uh, Ari Aster's films, your Midsummer. Actually, and- that's a lie. The, the probably the the best horror movie I've seen come out in the last ten years was The Ritual. Oh yes, that was great. That, that was movie excellent. was fantastic. And again, and, and like, and that brings back to my previous point. I could not have predicted that story arc. Well, again, and I've said this many, many times before across both this and the last podcast I did, Ground Grindhouse. What makes, in my opinion, horror as a genre so successful when it works is that it holds a mirror up to society. It reflects our fears. Yes. It reflects our anxieties. It reflects the things that deep down bother us, that we worry about, that we're afraid to speak. Right. It's the reasons we're afraid of the dark. We're not afraid of the dark because we're by ourselves. We're afraid of the dark because we don't believe that we're by ourselves. That just out of the reaches of our sight, there is something, anything beyond it. And we can't see it and perceive it. That's why people are afraid of the water, right? It's what lies beneath that is scary. And that's both physically true, as in the case of darkness or murky water. But it's also... Um, metaphorically true because what lies beneath what lies within ourselves as above so below what's deep inside that's the part that motivates fear right and what can be 
exercise in a cathartic moment through a good horror story, be it via movies or storytelling in traditional like campfire settings, what have you. When that has become less of a priority in the making of horror movies, thus reduces some of the effect. I think Midsummer was a great example of something that touched on multiple anxieties. It touched on the anxieties of being gaslit, both by a shitty boyfriend and by a cult. It had um, it motivated probably fears within men who think, man, I've not been the perfect boyfriend. My my girlfriend or wife's going to put me in a bear outfit and light me on fire. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, it, it touches on quite a bit of those things. Now, whether or not it was perfectly understood or um, reviewed or analyzed is another story. But I do think in the moment when that movie came out, it did, it did tap into those inherent fears, both for men and women, as the story is about relationships and power dynamics within a relationship. And I do think that it tapped into both anxieties. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you look at like any era of film, you definitely find that the most successful uh, films of that era definitely do tap into the anxieties of that time. Like if you look at the 70s and 80s, like a lot of those horror films, like the guy in the back of the car, the guy that catches the, gets the hitchhiker and murders them, like all of that sort of stuff. Like that was around the time where serial killers, like s- serial murders were happening a lot. Right. Like there are people on killing sprees going out there and murdering people. And that's like what a lot of these films do reflect. So, I mean... Why? What would? What sort of horror film would you make now? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question. I'm <laughs> going to read something real quick before we address that directly. This is from. I'm going to give credit to C. Robert Cargill. He is a writer who posts on Twitter. Um, his Instagram or his Twitter handle is. I'll just spell it M A S S A W Y R M. Let's see. So he says he gives some rules, as it were to writing a successful horror film. This is a this is listed as Cargill's How to Write a Horror Movie Crash Course. Okay, so we're going to read this. We're going to go through this. And then we're going to think about how we could make a successful horror movie these days. So number one on his list of how to write a horror movie crash course. The characters are the most important part. If you care about them, we'll get scared for them. Write interesting or likable characters. Preferably be both. Number two, write what scares you. If clowns freak you out, write clowns. If decapitation keeps you up at night, write that. What scares you? What scares others? Use that. Sort of what we're talking about by the anxieties of society. Number three, make sure something scary happens every 10 pages or so. Any longer, and the audience forgets that they're in a horror film. Keep the tension high. That's how I would sort of boil that down. Number four, be funny if and when you can, but not so much that it's a comedy, but used as a tension release. The audience will reset and be ready to be scared again. Character humor often works best here. One of the interesting things about, just as an aside, uh, as I digress, the most prevalent attribute that a film can have to guarantee its success is proficient use of tension. If you tight a violin string consistently, it will snap. If you don't do it enough, it just sounds like a wet fart. <laughs> but if you if you if you hold the right tension on the string as you run the bow across it, it will create 
the music of angels. Right. That is, there is no difference in movie making and in particularly horror. Right. So it's a great note. It's great that that also is, is back to back. Every 10 minutes, something should keep you tense and then give you a little reprieve. That's that balance that you strike in your tension. Very good advice. This is a, a well-recommended follow. Number five, if the characters aren't changed by their exposure to scary shit, that should be the whole point of the character. We'll get into character development. That's very important. Number six, if it's science fiction, the audience will expect everything to make logical sense. If the horror is magical in origin, they will give you much more leeway. Also applies to practical versus VFX. Mm -hmm. Number seven, Imagine all the possible ways your character could escape any deadly situation because the audience most assuredly will. The character should make the most logical choice. We've all heard about people Don't complaining. Don't run upstairs. Run out the front door. Scream was able to make a whole genre out of that just mm. by pointing out those fallacies in the way that bad filmmaking occurred, which is why... Even in that golden age of horror, there were bad horror films. There were tropey mm. things, as 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 proven by the fact that the screams of the world could lean into those things. I hate that term. I'm trying to purge it from my reality. That bad, you know, films from the '90s could expose those tropes because we mm. all expect it, and then played right into them. Right. And then number eight, horror tends to be brief. Unless you have a lot of deep character work, aim for less than 100 pages. As a line producer, I could not <laughs> validate that last one anymore. Yeah. But, okay, so now we have our rules to creating a horror film. You've been inspired by being immersed in this monster movie magic world of Monsterpalooza. Now, how do we make a great horror film in 2022? I don't... Uh, you know, I've been asking myself this a lot lately because I write a few different genres but I was just saying this morning like I would love to write a horror film that fucking scares people but what scares people now what's left well I, I think one of the things that is a bit difficult to come to terms that's something that's scary for us is that I think what scares people more often than not is it's a delicate line because a lot of what scare people, what, what is scaring people today, right, is stuff that is perpetuated by a certain faction of left-leaning society. And I think that that's unique. I, I think that traditionally in horror, and, and I could be wrong, feel free to correct me if I am, it feels like much of the anxieties that were, that were utilized to create fear within horror movies were things that were more right-leaning traditionally so you know you have in the 70s you've got your anti-rural movies your texas chainsaw massacres your wicker man you're all these type ideas that these more conservative units in the south and in the midwestern united states and and more rural areas are filled with dangerous people and 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 traditions and and things that don't that that would prove to do harm against the cosmopolitan people from the big cities, right? Like the satanic panic. Satanic panic yeah. is another great example. Um, even if you look at, I've said this, I know I've said this before, 
the great classic horror films from the 80s, right? Don't drink, don't have sex, don't do drugs. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Reagan, like a uh, Mrs., you know, uh, what's her name? Um, Ron Reagan's wife, her sort of don't just say no policy. Yeah, or who, who used to die first in those music movies? Usually the stoner guy, right? Right, don't or, do drugs, just say no. Girl, mm-hmm. like, you know, which is funny because like a lot of, I have seen quite a few like, more modern horror movies that have sort of flipped that on its head where it's like the happy-go-lucky stoner guy is usually the last one to die. Right, sure. <laughs> um, but but back then, the monsters in horror films personified conservative values mm. in many instances. Um, even even though, I, I mean, you know, the, the atomic creatures of like Godzilla and um, the, all the mad scientist films from the 50s were criticisms of, of war hawks, right? And the dropping of the atomic bomb and, and the misuse of technology. I don't know what there is to draw from that is still scary from the right. And maybe it's just a matter of because of it's all been it's all been used, right? Like I expected during the, the Trump administration for there to be some sort of and I guess to some degree there American was with like horror, American horror story. There one season cult tapped into that to some degree i think um jordan pill with get out you can speak yeah. to but beyond that there just doesn't feel like there's a lot of maybe the juice has been squeezed uh, the fruit's been squeezed dry of juice right well, i think that's true it's like it's trying to catch lightning in a bottle you know like and i think the only the only horror film that i can think of um that still plays into a lot of that stuff but is self-aware, but it's okay, is Scream. Yeah, but even that, I mean, Scream came out in, what, 96? Yeah, but it called upon a lot of those common fears and things from 70s and 80s movies. You know, there's a killer on campus. Like, you know what I mean? It's a very tropey. But we were talking before about, like, films being self-referential. I think Scream was, it was very aware of what... It was very smartly written. I mean, I think it's incredibly underrated. Because it, it knew exactly what it was and wasn't afraid to make fun of itself, but it made fun of itself in such a smart way that you don't realize it's actually happening. What I think, it's, what I think is, um, I think Scream's initial success is buoyed on its cleverness. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's uh, because Wes Craven had previously tapped into this sort of meta storytelling with Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That was sort of the proto yes. meta movie before Scream. I think what's made Scream endure beyond some of its contemporaries is that is Columbine. I think yeah. I think what it tapped into before its time was the fear that, which again is kind of a conservative talking point, right? It used to be anyway. Whereas people who are big fans of horror movie, people who love horror video games or violent video games, people who listen to the rappy music, that these people were inherently dangerous. And so who's the killer in Scream? It's a fanboy or fanboys. Spoilers. It's it's a movie about obsessed fans who love and consume this kind of what the right and the more conservative voices were calling dangerous movies and music and video games they were the representation of those fears well yeah because i i was doing a bit of a deep dive because I, I as you were saying before i listen to a lot of true crime i listen to true crime podcasts to go to sleep that's like my lullabies you know what i'm saying and i didn't actually know until like earlier this year that, that scream was actually based on like based on very loosely but based on actual events mm-hmm. so ghostface 
was based on the Gainesville Ripper. Um, and then there was like other events that happened in Florida that it was based on as well. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know when those crimes occurred, but I do think they were well before Scream came out. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what, what is what is there left to base movies on? Even if you take like loose inspiration. Well, if you look at if you look at the political landscape, if we continue if we continue down the path of drawing from more conservative fear-mongering as your uh, basis for the horror villain and motivation. Like I said, there was the Trump era, um, and there was certainly maybe the fear that there were racists around every corner. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I, like I said, I think Jordan Peele amongst most were, was able to tap into that. Yeah. I think if you look at more you know, post-Trump America, though, I mean, you could certainly look at the... You could certainly look at and probably revive... Uh, the films like a like a, the, the same sort of anxieties that motivated like a Rosemary's Baby, right? With the um, conservative Supreme Court looking to flip Roe versus Wade, right. that you could certainly tap into that. The idea of um, not having ownership of one's body. Frankly, though, I think that for those people who had concerns about COVID and the mandating of vaccines, I think it's a common I think that that same anxiety exists between both. Right. Someone else, an elite force telling you what you can and cannot do to your body. Mm. You know, you always want to boil things down beyond the specifics and get it to the the purest form of what that anxiety is, what that fear is. Um but that being said, once again, I don't think that that's conservative. It is a concretely a conservative value. So I think it's actually quite shared by both these days. I think that there has not been a successful movie that's really tapped into this idea of the cancel culture and the idea of canceling and the idea of uh, the distrust in media that we've seen is on the rise post Depp Heard case. I think that there's a real disconnect from. Uh, traditional institutions I think that's something you could potentially tap mm. into I think that there is a division amongst your your culture your society a general distrust and atomization I think that, I think that there are anxieties that we can tap into but I think that one of the reasons why it's very difficult for Hollywood to tap into these things is because Hollywood although as a industry is conservative in a traditional sense it's very risk adverse they don't take a lot of chances they're keeping they're gonna they're gonna, they're gonna go with the easy low-hanging fruit pre-sold franchises yeah it is politically more liberal and therefore it's always very difficult for people to criticize themselves or criticize their mates criticize their colleagues criticize their colleagues rather so um I'm interested to see if we can find a way to find legitimate anxieties that exist with one another within our society, divorce ourselves from our own personal beliefs, and use those to say something. And I think that's what's been missing in a lot of horror films recently, is that boldness to say, and again, I've mentioned this like three or four times now, I think Jordan Peele... You know, he's a little hit or miss with a lot of people. I don't think everyone loves his his films as much as others. I think sometimes people feel he's a bit on the on the nose with things, but he's really one of the few people I see really tapping into the set sentiment. No, I haven't seen a movie of his I haven't liked. Like, I can't think of one that is bad. Well, he's got two. So, <laughs> you know, he's bad in two for two. But like beyond that, um, you know, who's out there? There's Ari Aster. 
But, you know, again, his last movie was Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Robert Eggers, The Northman came out, not horror. It's but actually see, more of an epic. That's not for everybody, like his style of filmmaking. Like he's very arty um, and very, he's very flowery in the way that he does films. And like I've seen, like we saw The Northman. I thought it was great. Oh, it was. It was fantastic. But I recommend it. a lot it. of the reviews I've seen have hated it. Like, absolutely hate it because I don't think that it went in the direction. Like, I think they were expecting a Vikings movie. Well, because, look, as much as I like the TV show Vikings, Vikings in in the last, you know, 10 years or so have been sort of relegated down through the spectacle as a aesthetic and as a as an action mm-hmm. genre or maybe at best a political drama in the vein of, like, Game of Thrones. What he did with the Northmen was he presented a, a epic, a tale. Yes. Uh, a sonnet of of conquest of of I mean this was the inspiration for Hamlet yes this real life story or at least this real life uh, I don't know how I don't know how much of it was based in actual real life but it is certainly based on a real uh, epic that existed of that time which then inspired Shakespeare to write Hamlet this is this is epic storytelling and I don't just mean epic like it's used sort of um, contemporarily I mean it was a, a genre in and of itself this is on this is on par with like the Odyssey right and I, I that's just not what people are accustomed to in their movie making and so I can understand there was that rejection of this form of action that that exists in a more flowery sense than the average person is accustomed to because over the time I mean if you look at I'll just pick on Chris Nolan because I love him but you know if you look at the Dark Knight series right there was been this movement towards this utilitarian style of filmmaking in some regards or conversely on the opposite of the spectrum of superheroes you've got like the super marvely CGI jokey jokey very frivolous type films this lives somewhere in between it's deadly serious like the Dark Knight but it's also mythical right it, it's it's soaked in lore, which is more accustomed to, you know, it's it's more fantastical, like the Marvel films are, except with far more depth, like the Dark Knight films are. There's very few filmmakers like, and by the way, it made no money. It made like $35 million off like I a $90 million budget. So, you know, it's just, it's challenging because horror has always been that place that you could generally make a film for less money relative to big blockbusters. It had a lot of production value and aesthetic that people found appealing, and it allowed people to tell meaningful stories cloaked in fantasy. Mm. And I feel like we're, with a few exceptions, we're kind of at a place where a lot of this horror is no longer tapping into its original spring of creativity. Well, I think it's hard because like, and I was having this conversation with one of my friends recently, is that a bigger studios that have the budgets and the means to probably create a really good horror movie, uh, they don't want to take chances on that now. Like it's all pre-sold tra- franchises, it's your Marvels, it's your Star Wars, it's your DCs. Like if you look at like, how many Marvel and DC movies have we had in the last year? Too many. Too many. Um... Which is strange to me because they're all such predictable films. Is it Doctor Strange to you? It's Doctor Strange to me. <laughs> um, but like, I'm so burnt out on Marvel and DC. And I was having this conversation with a friend who was saying, oh, there's no, Hollywood doesn't make 
um, original films anymore. It's all Marvel. It's all DC. It's all Star Wars. It's all reboots, right? And I'm like, no. It's not that they're not getting made. They're getting made. You're just not watching them. So, for, you know, every time someone doesn't go to see the new movie with the unknown actors by an unknown director or producer in the cinema, they're just going to keep pumping out Marvel shit because they know people are going to... What was that Was what was that Marvel movie? Did like a billion dollars at the box office or yeah, something? It was, it was a Spider-Man one. It was a Spider-Man one, right? So... The Three Spiders, I think it was called. The Three Spiders. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> the Three Speeders. Um, you, you're just not going to see that in anything that's not Marvel, DC, Star Wars. And, and here's the big... This is the big um, disappointment about that. This is the, the biggest f- uh, flaw in this. Uh, the biggest, the, the biggest uh, I think, uh, damage is being done to our society is because we do need, I mean, storytelling, we think of movies as like a sort of a, a, a commodity, but it, it is storytelling and storytelling has always existed and it exists for a reason. It helps us exercise our own particular anxieties and demons. And we see a world that is lacking in nuance. We have people who don't want to see sad endings in movies, people who are, are uh, emotionally and mentally and spiritually handicapped at an age of adolescence and they have not evolved or matured beyond them because they're not going through in magic you call it your shadow work right storytelling has been a way a method by which we can expose the shadow work of our society and if we're not tapping into those fears then we're doing ourselves a disservice it's like putting our head in the sand and i think we start to see that generations raised on harry potter and marvel films where there is no that that depth is lacking we start to see the impact it's had on the way people think, the way people communicate, the way people understand things. Tribalism is an all-time high. It's Marvel versus DC. Mm-hmm. It's Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. It's Republican versus Democrat. And that is the level of depth that we currently have in most facets of our society. And I, I don't want to certainly say that if horror movies were better, that society would be better. But at least we'd have the opportunity to start examining ourselves through this storytelling so to put you on the spot what is something that you see especially as a as an australian now living in america what is something that scares you and how would we build a horror film off that it scares me in america just in general, like, what's your biggest anxiety? If I were to put a gun to your... Well, if I, I guess if I put a gun to your head... No, that would be my biggest be anxiety biggest, at the time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Having a gun to put to my head is my biggest anxiety right now. But if I said um, to you, you know, if I said to you, look, you got to right now reach inside. What is the thing that creates the most anxiety within you? That's like, that's a weird question because I, I couldn't give you an answer on that. I really couldn't. But that's the question that needs to be answered. If you do want to write a horror story on par with yeah. like The Exorcist, The Omen, The Shining, the all, Shining. Those, all those great films, like what is it that scares you? I mean, like my immediate, the immediate thing that gives me anxiety, especially if in America, is always damn kids with guns, man. Like that shit's fucking strange to me. Now, specifically about that, what is it about guns that scares you? Because your dad's got guns. Getting goddamn shot. That's what fucking scares me. <laughs> well, but more specifically than that, what what scares you about guns in America that doesn't scare you about guns in Australia? Because like you said, your dad's got like, what, seven guns or yeah. something? Okay, so it's not like people in all, people have this fallacy that think that people in Australia don't have guns. They do. Yeah. They probably even have lots of guns in some instances. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine that your fear of guns 
has been elevated since moving to America, especially in this last week. Let's be very real. Yeah, it's like the availability of guns. And like it's, it's strange because, like, there's so many um, sanctions on so many things, just not guns. Like, I was watching a video the other day, and this person was, like, in Walmart or something. She's like, oh, I'll get a – can I get this this vape pen and they're like oh sure let me see your id it's like oh sorry you're 18 you gotta be 21 to vape she's like that's okay i'll just take one of these guns in they're like yep sure no worries like that's weird yeah like that's strange like i guess then you could like tap into if you want to say what's the anxiety is like fucking kids man kids are insane like i just i don't live in a world well i do now because i live in america but i've never been in a world where I could be scared of like an 18 year old child or like even younger in a lot of instances in America. Right. Like I've never lived in that world. Like in Australia, some kids being the smart ass, you just punt them down the street. You know what I'm saying? Usually the threat, the threat would be enough for them to piss off. But it's like here, I, I, is that child going to have a fucking handgun in their pocket? I don't know. Well, like, and more than that, it's not even just having them, having them having a gun. Right. Cause I bet you if in Australia, you saw an 18 year old with a rifle, you'd be a lot less scared. What specifically mm. is about American youth that and their and their access to guns that scares you so much? Mental instability, right? And lack of mental health care. When I would I would go a little further, and I would say that we live in a very nihilistic and narcissistic society, and reactionary, society. and reactionary society. We're very fragile, and so it's not simply the weapon in one's hand; it's the mindset. And then, so then you start looking at society. What makes us so fragile? What makes us so narcissistic? Mm. What makes us so nihilistic? And that is your basis for your horror film that scares people. Because if I would ask myself the same question, what scares me or where my anxieties lie are with this idea that the people, the side, quote unquote, that I used to most closely identify with is the side exhibiting behaviors that I used to be against uh, and, and still are against censorship, the removal of expression of art, the, um, the, the whitewashing of, of history and of nuance and Mm. of detail, the removal of debate in good faith, the, um, the idea that people are proven guilty in court, in the public opinion before any sort of evidence has been presented. Right. The, the fact that people even give a shit what other people are doing in their personal lives. Those are all things which I think contribute to what you're talking about with like this sort of the mindset of society that has access to this dangerous weapon. It's not just the access to the weapon. It's access to the weapon with the mindset yeah. that they're carrying with them. So I do think that there's those things can and could very well easily be represented on screen in such a way that allows people to say, that's my fear too. I'm also scared of that. I haven't even realized how to express that, but that's what I'm, when I wake up every day and I have anxiety and I have like this, this sense of existential dread, that is what I'm tapping into. I think that that can still exist. It's just a matter of whether or not filmmakers are bold enough to examine that within themselves Right. And be willing to hold the mirror up to both the Democrats and the Republicans and the Libertarians and the Socialists and the uh, whatever. Every group, every sort of banner group that's out there. Can you hold that mirror up to all of them? And can you 
allow them to face the fact that their faces are all equally distorted in this mirror. Mm, Exactly. And I think that's that to me is the hallmark of not only a good horror film, but a good, healthy society. Right, exactly. Where we examine the ugly truths and warts and all of ourselves. And right. that's why I've always loved horror films so much, because it has always been able to do that when it's at its best. Now we just remake everything. Well, because there's no there's no boldness anymore. There's no there's no um, there's no uh, how do you say it's a uh, um, adve- sense of adventure bravery right. fearlessness like, to dive into the abyss and to come up with whatever is is deeply within oneself that is that we that we ignore with every fiber of our being so that we don't have to deal with it yeah i think like we were talking about this on another podcast that i did with you ages ago um was that like and i'm sure you've noticed it too because i've made you read everything i write like 85 times even before it's finished um (laughs) don't do that if you're a writer it pisses people off um i echo that (laughs) but like i everything i've written i've inserted a piece of myself for a piece of my life into everything that i've written. even like you've even said like i've read characters and like that is you or that is something that you have told me about or something like that and i think that that's something that people miss like they just miss that mark when they write too like and i think you can still do that with reboots but nobody does like I, I i don't know if you end up watching it the reboot of that texas chainsaw massacre it was garbage okay so i fucking love texas chainsaw massacre right the first one even like the second one wasn't too bad that reboot was ridiculous it was like it sounded like a 40 year old year old man was like i'm sorry <laughs> I'm 41, so it's, it's fine. But it sounded like a 40-year-old man be like, hello, fellow young children. I well, see these are the problems you're having today. Well, what's funny is that I don't know who wrote it, but I know... I do. I vaguely know the director. He was like... Uh, he was he came from the same film community that I came from. I know the DP. I worked with him once on a short film. Um, they're my age. Yeah. So you're not wrong on that point. But I will say, though, the cinematography and the direction was stunning. Well, yeah, because right? they're both... You know, the director comes from the camera department and mm-hmm. the DP is fantastic. But it, it wasn't telling us anything. No. And it, it, and it no, nothing made sense. And it, it was like, yes filmmakers i also watched david gordon green's remake of halloween i was just gonna say that it's basically halloween but inserting all this fucking stupid shit they're on the bus like man you're gonna be so canceled fuck off like that is ridiculous i hate when they try and insert like this faux woke shit and then again this might just be old lady yelling at the clouds but it's like you were on that right path where you had something to say, but that's what you chose to say. Well, because you have to be willing, you have to be willing to examine yourself. Mm. So for example, there are certainly people who are tired of this over the top policing of language, this, this very immature juvenile belief that you can quote unquote, turn the channel and someone ceases to exist. Mm. I.e., cancel them. This doesn't, this isn't real. If, if canceling, I mean, the canceling can absolutely ruin people's lives. It can certainly disrupt their lives. It can certainly drive them off Twitter. But if it was really effective use of activism, then people would cancel mass shootings. Yes. And they haven't. Because it's it's masturbatory signaling of one's own piousness when the fact of the matter is no one lives up to that purity test. 
But you have to go to those depths in order to say that in a way that's effective. You can't just write a stereotype who says a dumb thing and then chop their head off with a chainsaw and expect anything more than it being what it is, which is a shallow representation of tropes that doesn't actually examine the core fear Mm. that perhaps we're being ruled by a society of people who are acting as judge, jury, and executioner without any sense of understanding, empathy, compassion, or nuance. Right. That scene in that story does none of that. Touches on none of that. None of that movie does anything of that. And, like, it was really disappointing because I think you were in New York filming at the time, right, when I watched it. I think you were. I think. Because I was texting you about it. Maybe. And, like... it's such a shame because it is shot so beautifully and there are some shots in there I was like wow that's stunning like the use of light and like framing and all that sort of stuff some of it was absolutely gorgeous like the acting was fine like it's a Texas Chainsaw movie I mean none of you know know, we're not expecting fucking Oscar worthy shit here but like it's just it it was purely the writing that bogged me down like a hundred percent like there were some major plot holes in there and a lot of timelines that don't make sense. Um, but it, it was basically just a ripoff of Halloween insert. Like, how the fuck were all these young people just coming in and fucking... No, none like, of it made sense. It, does, it just didn't make sense. didn't make sense. Um, well, because, again, it doesn't examine anything. It just says, hey, people like when he spins his chainsaw around. Let's do that. Hey, you know, people who have self-drive Teslas come off as obnoxious. Oh, fuck. That scene fucking killed me. Oh, let's, my God. Let's make fun of that. Hey, dorks who've never punched werewolves before, <laughs> who spend all their time on uh, Twitter and Instagram and, and TikTok-y and all that jazz. Like, they're annoying. Let's let's cut their heads off with chain. It's all, again, it's all shallow mm. because there's no, exa- there's no self-examination within it. Because if you do self-examination, you might have to be, you, you as the filmmaker, as the writer, as the storyteller may be confronted with things that make you uncomfortable. And it's that uncomfortableness that makes the horror movie memorable because if you're confronted with something as the artist your your audience in theory is also confronted with that same realization that perhaps we're complicit in our in our own in the things that create fear within ourselves you've watched rosemary's baby and the world in which men dominate women and and control their bodies and things of that nature it's meant to not just scare you with devil worshipers Right. It's meant to scare you with the fact that we're complicit in the society that dominates women's bodies in this way. Right. Most of the current horror movies don't have this. Now, I don't know enough about it, and you're more in this world than I am, but what's what's this landscape look like in video games? Because it feels like horror video games are big business nowadays. Maybe so more so than they are than horror movies are relative to the film industry. In some instances, when you look at film and you look at, you know, the strength of writing, a lot of strong writers moved from features to television. Is there any of that in video games? Like, have the have good st- horror stories just moved into a different medium? Um, I mean, there are some good, like, horror video games, like, out at the moment. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, some of them do a lot better at... Um telling a story. It, I guess, as well, it feels more immersive because you're actually in there you're you're controlling what happens like there's uh like there was one good one that came out was until dawn that was really fun that was cool in the sense that you kind of control what happens i forget how many endings there are to that game i want to say it's like 10 so it's like a choose your own adventure sort of yeah but it's like even very small decisions that you make 
in the way that you talk to other characters in the game will influence everything Hmm. like things like that so like there's like a new game coming out called the quarry and it's got a huge cast like david arquette's in it like all that sort of stuff and it's like former wcw world heavyweight champion (laughs) david arquette (laughs) is he still wrestling now or no he might be indies I haven't I haven't been paying too much attention. I, I've seen him wrestle live. Have you really? Yeah, it was decent at the comedy store. <laughs> Fuck. Um, but you know, I mean there are so I mean Dead by Daylight seems to be doing still really well, which is funny to me because like I used to really enjoy that game, but it gets very repetitive. Yeah, I could see it where it's like the, the, for people who don't know the premise of Dead by Daylight, you get dropped into a map, a world, and you have certain tasks. There's what four generators, five, five generators that you have to like fix, and you you got other mates around you, and there's a killer on the loose, and then you know if you get the generators open in time, you get to escape through the hatch, and you can yeah. escape through the hatch before the killer gets you, then you win. It's but it's a pretty contained. It's like ra- it's more round based. Yeah. Like every round is virtually the same premise. Yeah. Different maps, different locales, different killers, but but the core premise is is It's the same in every round. Every single round, yeah. right. Yeah. So I think that that's where that got a little bit repetitive, which is kind of what horror movies are like now, I guess. Just repetitive. It's the same formula. Which Scream then makes fun of. It's a formula. It's a very simple formula. Right. Um, but at least they're aware of it. <laughs> make fun of themselves now have you played the new evil dead i have what's I it have. like it's good i really enjoyed it i have a few qualms with that game um number one being you can't turn other people's microphones off oh so if i'm trying to stream and i'm playing it by myself the whole stream hears everything everyone is saying and i can't talk to my stream without them all hearing me that's one of the main qualms i have so it's definitely more fun with friends you can play with up to four other people i think the game itself is fun. It's like nostalgic, you know. It's got some of the old little quippy quips from Evil Dead, which is nice. Um, but I'd have to wait and see until I can play it with a group of people. Um, I mean, solo it's still fine, but I don't want to listen to everybody. I just want to play the game. <laughs> I don't want people to hear me. Now, do you think maybe like I, I wonder to myself because obviously movies are going the way of superheroes, and I don't see that changing course anytime soon unless there's a huge economic crash. But do you feel like perhaps horror, the horror genre, could find a, a new home in video games? Because like when you were talking about the Until Dawn with its with this multiple choice and its mm-hmm. more immersive experience, mm-hmm. I wonder if the way to captivate people once again and i and, and this, this takes nothing away from what i said earlier about the what the topic needs to sort of be around in terms of tapping into our own anxieties mm. but really placing people there placing people within the moment giving them choices instead of just observing feels like it could really be a haven for those who enjoy the horror genre like goosebumps books I wouldn't have said that, but sure. They have choose your own adventure Goosebumps book. Do they? I don't know. I, I was a little Absolutely. too old for Goosebumps. I was more of afraid. Are you afraid of the dark? Uh, oh, so scary good. stories to tell in the dark. That eerie was Indiana. Eerie Indiana. That's where like that was more my genre. And by the time Goosebumps came around, I was a bit old for that. I was still in school. I was still in primary school, so I used to read them all the time. I I, so I have the DVD box set as well. <laughs> so I think it's fun, even but, though it's a kids show. But do you feel like that could be? maybe a genre a, a medium by which the genre could find new ground like a 
the video games you mean yeah um i mean i think so but again horror video games are very much like horror films like there's a there's a lot like there's a lot of them but a lot of them aren't great like i've tried some even some weird i was playing some weird indie uh spanish no it wasn't spanish it was italian it was somewhere in europe this game and like everyone was like oh my god it's so scary like you have to try it i'm like okay and then i played it i was like this is fine like it's kind of creepy looking, but I I don't know. Like it, again, it's very very similar to to the movie industry where there's a lot out there, but is there a lot out there that's good? Not really, not really. I'm hanging out for the quarry. That game looks really fun. Well then, we'll then we'll say this. We should pose a challenge to all the wonderful listeners out there, the creative minds, the people who are expanding their brains to deepen the depths of their uh, intuition and their creativity and their imagination. There is a world where horror plays an important part, and I do think that we've moved away from that. And I think it's to our own societal. Um, uh, uh, lack of lack of growth Mm -hmm. detriment is the word i was looking for it's to our own subtle detriment and i think that it's incumbent upon all of us to find a way to reinstate that very necessary and healthy mechanism of catharsis into our storytelling and to treat the movie world like what it is which is a form of storytelling it just serves a very very pivotal role in our development as a society and i think the more it's become strictly commerce strictly a commodity the the more it has started losing its original intent art went from a method of, of holding a currency to holding secrets to sharing those with future generations into pop art which is basically something you can buy a print of and put on your wall and it's aesthetically pleasing but lacks much more beyond that and whether it's in video games or whether it's in movies i think it's an important thing that we need to reintroduce into our society before we completely become so inept at exploring the darker sides of our psyches that we strictly forget how to do so for those who enjoy your very sassy italian voice italian or australian (laughs) why did you say italian i don't know it's because you said italian earlier and it stuck in my head italy (laughs) okay so don't listen to her for her italian voice because her italian accent is terrible for those who enjoy your very sexy australian voice and would like to follow you listen to you um play along with you perhaps on your stream uh, not physically, let her do her own thing, but you know, <laughs> emotionally, how can they find you on your Twitch channel? Let's tell them a little bit about where it's at and how it's grown over the last few months, years. Yeah. So my Twitch channel is coffins and coffee. Um, I'm usually on five days a week. Um, we've been playing a lot of Fortnite actually, cause there's no good horror games out. Uh, but we will be live streaming the quarry when that does come out. We should have a group of people, um, playing that. And I'm going to try and play that one to completion. It's supposed to be a 10-hour game, so we'll see if we can get it done. Are you just going to do like a super marathon one day? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. Um, but yeah, so it's Twitch, Twitch uh, Coffins and Coffee is where you'll find me. I think I'm also Coffins underscore Coffee on Twitter if you just want to see me post some zesty memes. Well, I if you're into watching video games being played and you don't mind cursing or... Uh, terms that would be frowned upon in America being shouted loudly or uh, age inappropriate 
beanies coffins and coffee the twitch channel is the place for you it's very entertaining sometimes i will make a brief appearance vocally um and thank you thank you jess for coming on the podcast thank you for us going to monster palooza that was really fun that was fun i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did and i want to thank all of you all for listening there's no intro outro this episode we're just doing it live do it live um no but thank you all for listening thank you for being a part of this thank you for uh staying with us through our name change from a culture shock podcast to into the looking glass darkly i am going to get better and used to using the new name without stumbling all over it uh, but i appreciate the feedback that i've gotten from each of you everything has been very positive and i i thank you and love you all for listening so uh once again we'll call this a wrap for today go watch some horror movies go write some horror movies go demand better horror movies and see them at the cinema and see them at the cinema these things are important they're important for our culture they're important for our society and ultimately they are important for our own personal growth and so until next time love you all gold rings on you all peace